0: Please listen carefully.
1: This is the seriously entertaining podcast where writers and audiences come together for close encounters of the literary kind. Brought to you live every month from House of Speakeasy. At each and every show, our storytellers riff on a theme. In this episode, They explore the final act with the theme, This is not the end.
2: Novelist Alexander Chee explains why endings are so damn hard. Irish writer Colin McCann takes us back to his beginnings to show why nothing really ever ends.
1: But first, the TV writer and Babylon 5 creator, J. Michael Straczynski, talks about the power of simply walking away. We are your hosts. I'm Amanda Foreman.
2: And I'm Lucas Whitman.
1: Let's start the show.
0: My dad was the most evil person I have ever known in my entire life. Without exaggeration, he was a racist, a misogynist, a sexist, a a wife-beater, an alcoholic. He was a sampler platter of evil. (laughs) He hated everything, but he particularly hated bills. And to avoid them what we would do is we would keep moving from place to place to place. So in my first 17, 18 years, we moved 21 times. Uh, From New Jersey, where I came from originally, to California, to Texas, to Illinois, every six to eight months was a different city, a different town, a different state, uh, different curriculum, private school, public school, Catholic school. and my life became a catalog of endings. And every, every six and eight months, we would back up to U-Haul. And whatever I could not fit into two boxes had to be left behind. So for the first, you know, 17 years of my life, I had no friends. And every, you know, everything I knew about the neighborhood, the kids, uh, the school, the curriculum, all vanished, it disappeared. I had to start over somewhere else. And I kind of got used to the idea that my life consisted of endings. At one point I thought, well, look, if if I'm going to go from here to there and they don't know me there, I can be whatever I want to be. I could be a superhero. I could be a spy. I could be, you know, wherever I wanted to be. And I always ended up the goat. (laughs) And the geek, because that's that's what I actually was. and got the crap kicked out of me constantly wherever I went. But... What this did was to produce in me a lack of fear about losing everything and starting over and confronting endings. And that's one thing that I've noticed in my peers and just people in general, is that we all have this fear of ending. Neighborhoods, relationships, jobs, careers, there's this notion of better the devil you know than the devil you don't. And we tend to fall asleep in our own lives because we're afraid to reach out. People talk about fight versus flight. They forget that there's a third F word component to that, not the one you're thinking of. (laughs) It's freeze. When you talk about caught between fight and flight, you're talking about freeze. And people tend to spend their lives caught in freeze. And for this reason, I basically dedicated my life to ignoring that notion of the fear of ending. So consequently, over the last 30 years of my career, I have made it a point to blow up my career at every possible opportunity. So I was a reporter for like 10 years and made it all the way up to the LA Times, the Time Incorporated, And when a part of my brain said, you know how to do this, walk away, do something else. And on that day, I walked away from being a reporter, never went back, wandered in the wilderness for a while, got into animation for a while, did that for several years. Again, the voice in the back of my head said, okay, you know how to do this, step outside your comfort zone, do something else, try live action television. And I did that. And that ended up doing very well for me. I worked on Murder, Shiro, and Twilight Zone, and Babylon 5, and other shows. And then, at some point, my brain said, after after writing like 300 produced episodes, it said, you need to take a break. Don't walk away forever, but take a break. And again, walk outside your comfort zone. So I thought, what, what haven't I done? What's a good challenge for me? And I thought, let's do comics. I've never done comics. I'm a big comics fan. Let's, let's do that for a while. And went on to sell about 13 million copies in that area which is not bad (laughs) and after that got into movies and did my first film was Changeling and then worked on World War Z and Thor and a bunch of others and just recently again that same voice came up in my head of saying okay you've been doing comic books now for 13-14 years walk away Just make a clean break. And every time I do that, I announce it to the world so I can't go back. (laughs) Because my pride's in the way at that point. Say you're walking away and don't go back. And try something you really aren't known for doing, which is novels and plays. And that's... there's, There's two reasons for doing this, by the way. One is that, for the writers in the crowd, the more mediums you work in, the more tools you get the more you improve as a writer. Writing a good short story gives you the tools you need in terms of structure to write a good television episode, like a half hour to an hour. Writing a television episode teaches you how to write dialogue which you can then use in a novel, which gives you structure and and how to handle multiple threads which you can then use in a screenplay. It all adds up together in giving you more tools for your toolbox. The other reason that this helps out from my point of view is what I call the Prince from a distant land scenario. Because, see, becoming a writer isn't hard. Staying a writer (laughs) is hard. Because they get bored with you fairly quickly. The Writers Guild of America says the average career span of a TV writer is 10 years. But then they've seen all your tricks, they know who you are, that you have no more colors to show them. You're not shiny anymore. And every Medium is the same way. Novelists who work with novel publishers, uh, t- studios who work with movie writers, comic book publishing companies, with comic book writers, they kind of know who you are. But coming from comics to television or from novels to movies or from you know, TV to comics, suddenly you're a bright, shiny object. You may have been doing television for 10 or 15 years, but to comics or to novels, or to, you know, you're new, you're shiny. And suddenly you can work again. So it's worked to my benefit. And that's, to my mind, how you stay alive and vital as a writer is you keep reinventing yourself. This is not the end. You, this, this is an assessment. I tell my friends, all two of them, that you know, <laughs> when, when you get fired, this is the best thing that can happen to you, which is why I only have two friends. Um, because you now have the opportunity to assess where you are that those who work at the same company you worked in don't have. They're too busy doing what they're doing to decide, do I want to do this the rest of my life? You've just been fired. This is a great opportunity for you to reassess and decide what is the path you want to go on and think outside the box. And that's the reason that all the friends I had who were working writers when I came up to L.A., fell by the wayside. What had happened was they defined themselves to death. They said, this is the kind of writer that I am. This is the kind of story that I tell, this is the kind of work that I do. And when I said, well, why don't you try A, B, and C, they were terrified. They, 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 were, they couldn't break out of the box because as a writer, you start off with a tyranny of reasonable voices saying you're never going to make it. Then when you make it, the next set comes in saying don't screw it up. So they're caught between grabbing the new and letting go of the old. And they couldn't do it. They couldn't let go of what they had to imagine the idea of doing something other than that. And as a consequence, they lived in the box and they died in the box, which is what boxes are for. And I came to the realization a long time ago that, you know, in a strange sort of way, my life is not a a, a catalog of endings, it's a catalog of beginnings. And for those of you who are yourselves looking at your lives as writers, as people, it's not the same thing. Um, (laughs) Take a moment. You know, look, I'm not the most talented person in the world. I'm not the most attractive person. I have no discernible personality that science has yet discovered. (laughs) And if I can do it, you can do it. And I wish for all of you a life of beginnings, and start that today, because today is not the end. Thank you.
1: Jay okay, Michael Straczynski.
2: And our next speaker is a writer whose byline you've seen in the New York Times, Slate, many other publications. He's the recipient of a Whiting Prize. And he's the author of the ravishing, bewitching new novel, Queen of the Night, Alexander Chi. And this is, just to leave you for a moment, he's written about writing. I think what makes one a writer is the willingness to follow your thoughts anywhere, especially if they lead out of the present in search of what they will say to you about the past. Alexander Chi.
3: Hello, darlings. How is everyone? I had a terrible day, so I can't be parted from this drink, so I hope you don't mind. I call this the Boy Who Cried Novel. Um, In 2005, I'm going to guess, probably making that up, um, I had a private student in writing, an older man who uh, we would meet for discussions about his novel. And I would assign him novels to read, and he would always bring them marked up in pen. He had been editing them as he went along. So it was fascinating to me to see what survived and what did not, especially because from his own work, let's just say, I didn't think he should be doing that. But he was learning, and this was a way for him to learn, uh, I soon realized, what his intuitions were as a writer, the choices that he would make versus the choices the writer had made. And I grew to respect that. At a certain point, he said to me, you know, endings are hard. Endings might be the hardest. It's the thing everyone gets wrong. (laughs) And I said, you know, Go on, <laughs> because at that point i was i was let's just say preoccupied with uh beginnings more than endings uh, I'd started a new novel about an opera singer, and there was a circus somewhere in there, and there was second Empire of france, and i wasn't sure how it was all going to fit together, and he said. Just about every novel ends badly And I said what do you mean by that And he said I mean that it doesn't satisfy I mean that it's its like They spend all of their time at the beginning And then they rush the last part of the book And then the ending is terrible Well I thought about publishing <laughs> um, I thought about the number of friends I'd had Who'd sold their books in advance Of finishing them and of the kind of ramshackle rush to finish that so often they ended up in. And I thought to myself, that's not going to be me. Well, I soon sold my novel, Unfinished, uh, in 2005. And hilariously, the contract said that I would be done in 2006. This is for the novel that just appeared. I would say that, in doing press for the book, a lot of people have asked about, like, what were you doing all that time? (laughs) This fall, when the paperback of The Queen of the Night comes out, it will join my first novel uh, in paperback also. I was not writing the second novel for 15 years, though. I was variously teaching, sometimes for a great deal of pay, sometimes for nothing. I was living on grant money. I had a really important, what I would call an early midlife crisis in Los Angeles that involved a borrowed white Porsche and a 4,000 square foot apartment. I was in my mom's basement for three months. I lived in Rochester for a year as a disgruntled faculty spouse. There were lots of really cool adventures. And I was writing the novel and thinking about my opera singer. I'd soon developed a sense of not the ending, but what was right before the ending. And so I I wrote what I would call three approximate endings in an attempt to get at the actual ending. All of them were, I wouldn't say exactly rejected by my editor, one was, she said, that's the I shot JR ending, I forbid that. (laughs) Um, So variously they were, an ending where my character is in jail, fantasizing about everything that's happened to her. Uh, An ending where she is uh, living under another new name, she has several different names in the course of the novel and several different identities. And I imagined in this ending that she was an old lady somewhere outside of Seattle, uh, having lost her singing voice, giving piano lessons, and smoking cigars on her back porch where she could look at the grave of the composer she had loved. I think that is an ending that we might call a private ending, Um, which is to say it's best just for the writer to know. Anne Carson, a poet I admire greatly, she has an ideal for endings which has to do with an ending that you can walk around the back of, um, which is to say, think of the ending and then think a little bit more, which was what I was trying to do. That begs the question of whether I was maybe going too far. Maybe what I thought was right before the ending was the ending. And that was soon visible to me, that I had gone on too long, Um, which might surprise anyone who looks at the novel and it's 576 pages. Um, Well, let's just say it's not 580. (laughs) Um, I'm not gonna give you the exact ending. I will instead give you, by way of ending, the way I got to the ending, which was I thought of the writer Grace Paley and a quote of hers uh, everyone, real or imagined, deserves the open destiny of life, and that was, in some ways, the thing that I needed—a to way towards an ending that would allow the reader and the character both a sense that maybe it was all real—not that it wasn't, not that it was imagined, but that perhaps all that might really have happened and that she might go on to finally, if not own her own destiny, at least have a free destiny. Thank you.
1: You've been listening to House of Speakeasies, seriously entertaining podcast, where writers and audiences come together for close encounters of the literary kind. Now, let's get back to the show.
2: Our next and final speaker tonight is a man who's written six novels. You may know him for the novel Dancer or the National Book Award winner, Let the Great World Spin. His new collection of short stories, which has just come out, is called 13 Ways of Looking. I encourage you all to check it out. So, without further ado, I want to share with you some words from Colum McCann. Are you a writer only when you're sitting down at the table writing, or are you a writer when you're out in the world? I kind of like the idea that there's a time when I'm not a writer. I'm just listening. Tonight, he's just talking. Colin McCann.
4: I was living in Dublin, and um, I was a football fan. Now, my father had been, um, as far as I knew at that stage, he, was, he, he had been a professional football player. He'd been a goalkeeper in, in England. Um, and he was a journalist, and he was a writer, and he, and, and he wrote books. And I loved him dearly. And I, I was the first of my family to be born in Dublin. The rest of them had been born in England, uh, even though we were all from Ireland. And um, I was, for my sins, a um, a supporter of a team called Stoke City. I had never been outside of Ireland, and um, my father said, we're going to go to a Stoke City Uh, versus Arsenal game in London Um, and so we went across on the cattle boat and when we were on the cattle boat my father uncharacteristically bought a bottle of whiskey Um, and then he also bought 200 cigarettes a carton of cigarettes he didn't smoke and he didn't really drink, he drank wine he was like like that that anti-Irish man who drank wine I thought this was strange, but I'd like you know he had tucked them away in his bag, and we went to the Arsenal versus Stoke City game. It was nil all. Um, it was it was a great experience for me. Um, and um, as we were exiting the stadium, my father took my hand. Now my father loved me very much, and I love him very much. However, he wasn't very demonstrative, and it was the first time in my life that I remember him uh, sort of taking my hand. And he said, um, we're going to get on a bus and we're going to go down to uh, the centre of London and you are, for the first time, going to meet your grandfather. So my grandfather had left Dublin, um, where he'd been a coal merchant, and had gone to London to apprentice, like a lot of Irishmen do, in being a drunk. And he had accomplished it very well. He was estranged from the family. I didn't really know anything about him. I'd never met him before. So we got off the, uh, the bus and we walked to the Pimlico Road. And the nursing home on Pimlico Road, we walk up into the middle of the nursing home, up this dark staircase, into a room where my grandfather was sitting there. And he was in a bed. And um, we stood in the doorway, my father and I, and um, my grandfather said, Who's there? And my father said, It's Sean, which was unusual for, for me to hear because I, like, I thought of my dad as dad, not Sean. And, and he said, Who's that with you? He said, Well, it's your grandson, Colum." And my grandfather said, Ah, another feckin' McCann. I was like, oh, Jesus, here we go. Here we go, my God. Um, so I walk into the room, and my, my father gives me the bottle of whiskey, which is a very Irish thing, and not the cigarettes, because the, the, the cigarettes will kill you, but the whiskey's good for you. Right? <laughs> he gives me the whiskey to give to my grandfather, my grandfather starts to beam, the oxygen tent beside him starts to pulse. <laughs> uh, and um, my father gives him the, the, the cigarettes, And suddenly, my grandfather beams. And becomes alive, and he talks to me about 1916 and the, and 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 and, and uh, the the rising. He talks to me about 1918 and the war of independence. He talks to me about the Spanish Civil War and how he went out to Spain to fight in the Spanish Civil War. Oh my God! And 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 I'm hearing all these stories now. Just a leap ahead a little. He was a fascist, and he went out to fight with Franco. <laughs> I wanted him so badly to be one of the fellows who was doing "Bella Ciao, Bella Ciao, Bella Ciao, Ciao, Ciao," but he wasn't. Anyway, like I had a fantastic time sitting there listening to my grandfather telling stories about who he was, where he came from. And to me, it was, it, it was one of those explosive moments. You know those moments where you sort of open up your rib cage and someone reaches in and twists your heart backwards, but you don't know how far you're going backwards? It felt like that to me. And, 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 and um, we went back from London to Dublin, and on the Monday, my teacher, Mr. Kells, said, uh, you have to write an essay about the person you most admire this week so I sat down to write an essay about the person I most admire so I went out to my father and I said can I write about my grandfather and he said grand yeah yeah no worries just fire it fire away so I did and that Friday the teacher uh, had me read the piece out in class and for me even though I was the son of an author, even though there were lots of writers coming to our house in Dublin, for me, it was the first time that I realised reading that little essay aloud in class, in school, in Fox Rock in Dublin, that um, somehow this curious thing called language had a power that we don't always necessarily recognise um, I wasn't aware of it at the time. I think of it now as the moment that I learned that I wanted to write. Fast forward through the Irish educational system. We studied Maupassant. We studied, uh, you know, all sorts of writing. But but when I was growing up, see, we were embarrassed by Joyce. We were, uh, and, and so I didn't get a chance to study um I should have studied all the short stories. I should have studied everything, but I didn't. And um, I knew about Joyce, uh, but I didn't really study him. Um, Again, fast forward a few years. I was a journalist. Uh, I gave it up. I took a bicycle across the United States for two years. Then I went to work with juvenile delinquents. Finally, for the first time, really, went to college in the University of Texas. And for the first time... I was supposed to study Ulysses. And um, I pretended that I did. Like everybody else, I read parts of it. You know, I read the opening. Um, I read the easy parts. I read Cyclops. I definitely read the orgasm at the end. (laughs) I I was very... and, 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 And then over the years, I sort of, like, went back in And studied bits and pieces of Joyce until like sort of in my late 20s, I truly believed that I had read Ulysses. And I had. I would probably read every word of the greatest novel of the 20th century. But I had never read it from beginning to end. Um, And then a few years later, I got a, a very serious illness. And I had to go to hospital here in New York for about two weeks. Um, And that's when I sat down and I properly read Ulysses from beginning to end. And it was such a beautiful experience to read a book like that. And then I realized that I was reading a book that set June 16th, 1904 in Dublin. And then I started to think, what about my grandfather? What about that man who said, in the London nursing home, ah, another feckin' McCann? When was he born? I asked my dad, and he'd been born in 1898. So my grandfather was six years old at the time that Ulysses was set. And as I read the book, as I got deeper and deeper into the book, I began to understand the man who I had not understood before. It was truly amazing to me. This man who sat in the bed, who I had considered to be an old drunk, you know, telling these stories about this, that, and everything. Suddenly, by entering into the novel Ulysses, He was made entirely available to me. He became flesh. Everything that he had been was suddenly created through the imaginative act that James Joyce had written. And then I began to think that somehow the reality that we have is actually negotiated by our imaginative act And this act of language that James Joyce had performed in Ulysses was informing everything that I knew and would know about my grandfather. And this was so liberating to me. The idea that someone's imagination could put a reality on my life. What I mean is that the blood that is pumping through me right now, my grandfather's blood, my father's blood, was actually informed for me by an imaginative act by an author named James Joyce, whom I could not, would not know unless he had put it down there on paper. And to me, this suggests so beautifully that this is not the end. The purpose of literature seems to me to want to say that there is no end. There is absolutely no end. The imaginative act creates an ability for us to step into the reality of our lives and expand ourselves in the most extraordinary way. Thank you.
1: That was Colin McCann on stage for House of Speakeasies. This is not the end. Unfortunately, this is the end of the episode. And thanks to all of our performers, Jay Michael Straczynski, Alexander Chi, and Colin McCann. Please join us next time when another crew of brave storytellers take the stage.
2: To learn more about the House of Speakeasy and what we do as a non-profit, visit our website at houseofspeakeasy.org. And if you're in the New York area, join us at one of our live shows at Joe's Pub at the Public Theatre.
1: I'm Amanda Foreman.
2: And I'm Lucas Whitman. Thanks for listening.